Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. You can get your mom a subscription to patreon.com slash partners in crime media for her birthday, just like I did. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, a viral newspaper story leads to a decades-old accusation against a powerful man. We'll talk about the Washington Post investigative podcast, Canary. Then, the brutal slaying of an English family was ruled a murder-suicide. Can a lone detective convince the brass that someone else is the killer? We'll look at the murders at White House Farm on HBO Max. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and guy who always wears his pants during Zoom calls, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> well, look, I mean, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> it's a high bar, right? Just you know, like just, keeping your pants on. Man, I'm just telling you, you know, it, it might be in the news, but... I mean, who, who who says that they there hasn't been like a really stimulating Zoom call? Yeah, as it was, it was very erotic. A Zoom call, Obviously. as we know, is all very very erotic. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady and future hyena hunter, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Um, I have a beef to pick with you guys. Oh, so we had our last Facebook Watch video last week, and Kevin told us to all have team spirit and wear our crimeiters on bowling <laughs> shirts. Yeah. And then I watched the video last night, and I was the only one with team. Spirit. So, what gives? Did yeah. I not tell you, Laura, that I would rather die than wear that stupid shirt? I said that to you many times. I was very transparent about it. Well, I felt like I had the spirit, so that's all I'm going <laughs> to say. And I, I wore mine like in episode two, right? So, I and think it was it's also fine. ugly. Yeah. It was ugly then too. <laughs> I like it. I'm waiting for when we join the podcaster Dart League, and then I'll start wearing it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It's Bullseye. really bad. Honestly, if we had a fan who was interested in designing us like a cool shirt, like one that was actually cool and that wasn't like super lame and looked like a corporate giveaway from like a bad cult conference. Hey, you commissioned the logo, Rebecca. It's not the logo. It's the actual shirt. It's the shirt itself is like itchy and weird and, and boxy. It's like super boxy. It's a, it's a polo shirt, golf shirt. Yeah. <laughs> it's boxy. Have you been shot by a hunter wearing it? <laughs> No, Toby, I've never been shot by a hunter while wearing it. You know why? Because I wouldn't be caught dead wearing it. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I I have the spirit. You all can be a bunch of, you know, whatever. 
Sorry, Laura. I'm very sorry to leave you out to dry like that. Finally with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs, our Patreon book club host, and the always fashionable white t-shirt wearing Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. I have no bones to pick with any of you. Oh, I'm yeah, so glad. We're all good. I'm so we're all good. a relief. You know, it's funny, Laura. We were talking for like 15 minutes before we started taping. You didn't pick that bone then. You waited till I hit record. Because I wanted, <laughs> I wanted the rest of the world to know yeah. that I had the team spirit. I was ready to sing the Crime Writers on song, do the cheer. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for everybody. Clearly. She's been marginalized. Yes. Well, by you. Yeah. You were yeah. so unhinged with her during our last outtake last week. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I hope people know that if they wait till the very end of the recording, there are outtakes every week. Some oh my people God. don't know. I found out today that our longtime listener, Jamie, was like, was, we were talking about the outtake in our Facebook group, and Jamie was like, what is everyone talking about? And someone was like, at the end of the episode, and Jamie was like, I'll go check it out. And I was like, Jamie, FYI, you're in luck, because there are 200 plus of those that you can listen every to episode. right now. <laughs> There's always an outtake, every time. Yeah. Not promising we're going to screw up in a funny way tonight. That's right. But You never know what it's going to be. Sometimes it'll just be yeah. us being lame. Sometimes it's Kevin going on an unhinged rant about Laura Brickers not knowing a promo code for one of our advertisers. <laughs> it's like a wild-ass guess what it could be. <laughs> All right. Are you guys ready to start taping a podcast? Yes, we are. Let's get it done. I deserve to feel safe, and so does this community. How many people have to hold their sisters, their friends, their lovers, or their daughters while they weep because of the things that this man has done? In 2013, Lauren Clark was sexually assaulted by a stranger on a Washington, D.C. street. Several failures by the system moved Lauren to begin a very public battle for justice. After Washington Post reporter Amy Britton's story went viral, it prompted an unanticipated tip. Hi, Amy. My name is Carol, and I have some information that may be pertinent to your recent article. It is very sensitive information for me, implicating a person in your story. Carol Griffin revealed a link between Lauren's case and her own sexual assault 40 years earlier. In the podcast, Amy investigates the claim against a powerful person and explores the emotional connection between Lauren and Carol, whose separate stories dovetail into one. When I walked in here, I'm like, I just, I picture myself just holding your hand and just I don't know what to say to you except just thank you. And we're in this together, sort of like something like that, you know. In the seven-part podcast Canary from the Washington Post, we follow Amy's three-year effort to flesh out the story of a long-ago accusation and its effect on those directly and indirectly evolved. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points, some of which are actually quite spoilery from Canary. So if you want to remain spoiler-free on this podcast, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review, and then perhaps listen to the podcast after you hear what we think about it. All right, so let's Let's get into it. First outing by the Washington Post into the serialized podcast space. Kevin, yes. for a first time outing, I'm not going to ask you to review it, yeah. but are you impressed with the quality, generally speaking, of this investigation uh, serialized series from the series? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the Post has been out. They have, they have sort of standard, you know, this political podcasts and whatnot. The first time they have a podcast like this. Yes, and um, you know they bring some really great stuff to it. I mean, I think there's some style things that I didn't quite care for, but those are style things. The substance of it is really, really good, and the first episode in and of itself 
you know, it's a good sort of self-contained story. Maybe not anything terribly extraordinary. A good look at an issue. And then all of a sudden, the twist at the end of the first episode, which sets up what the podcast really is all about, mm. was Amazing. I actually think for that reason, the first episode of the podcast Canary is one of the most perfect first episodes of a podcast I have ever heard for exactly that reason. Because first of all, you're hearing a story. We hear the story of Lauren and her sexual assault that she describes is not a story that you hear very often. This is not a story of a a serial abuse case or of a a rape. You know, a random street crime. This is a random street crime attack where there is a man who attacks her on the street violently, punches her, throws her down and touches her. And it gets sort of pled down in the courts to this very minor charge. And she basically doesn't get justice for being violated and, 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 you know, abused in this really horrible way. Uh, She puts out signs in her neighborhood because she knows the guy is a cook in a restaurant and she sort of wants everyone to be aware that he's this violent guy walking around. And you think that's the end of the episode. And it isn't with the twist at the end, which we'll talk about in a second. But I think even that story, it's one that we never hear about. And it doesn't go reported because the cases get pled down in court so to me that alone was interesting and well we hear a little bit of that in dig a little bit you know a little bit but dig is an example of a, of a podcast which is like we're going to examine a big issue right. by looking at this one case but this is one it starts story. off like yeah. you think that's what this is going to be it's right. going to be like like serial season three or it's going to be one of those podcasts where we're like we're going to get in to the system but it ends up not being that it ends up we find out here comes the spoiler that someone says, oh, the judge in that case molested me 40 years ago. Right. And that's where, I don't, you can't call it the MacGuffin because the MacGuffin is actually an, ins, an, uh, an, an insignificant thing yeah, that's, yeah. that sets off the action. But that case launches, you know, is almost parenthetical in the beginning to where this case goes. Right. Truman Morrison is the judge in Lauren's case. He's the one who, after careful consideration, he's this very well-respected judge, allowed this case to plead way down and actually sentenced this perpetrator to 10 days, basically, of his choosing that he got to serve in prison. Must be nice. Laura Bricker. He didn't even bribe to get his kid into college. Laura Bricker, what did you think of the structure of this first episode, Lauren's story, an unusual story, and then this twist at the ending? Yeah, I think... I think Lauren's story set off my rage walking at a pace that I haven't had in a while. Um, Just because listening to it, you're thinking, this is horrible. I mean, she's being very upfront and forthcoming with this awful, very violent attack that it's not like it was like date rape or anything like it was like out of the blue. And then to hear that, you know, it should have been a felony. He should have been in the sex offender registry. He's a chef and he's an upwardly mobile chef in these trendy DC restaurants. And she's seeing him everywhere. I was just like, as I was like walking around listening to this. But then I'm thinking, where is this going to go? I'm thinking, okay, they're going to like examine the sentencing. And then when you have that twist at the end, you're like, oh, there's more to this story. And this is going to connect to a bigger issue. And I'll talk about it in the end, but it didn't go to the quite where I thought it was going. But I think it was a really great setup. We hear a lot about Truman Morris and this judge in the first episode. Uh, we hear that he has this stellar reputation for being very pro-criminal justice reform. He believes in sentence reduction. He believes basically in all these things that we all believe in and talk about as being inequities in the system. And we're kind of set up through episode one to think that, you know, maybe he made a mistake here. Maybe this was an incidence of him not having all the information or him 
you know, sort of leaning on his criminal justice reform background and, and considering this particular case. And then we hear this bombshell about him at the end of it, that he's being accused of the serial molestation of this woman, Carol. What did you think of that revelation and how it felt compared to all the information we had about Morrison prior in the episode? Well, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with Laura and Kevin when they when they said that, or maybe Kevin didn't say it, but when Laura said that, um, you know, she, she thought that things might go in a different way than they ended up going. You know, I was left with the impression that it's going to be, and it was a little bit about this, but about how how would his, you know, prior offense or whatever affect the uh, carrying out of, of, of justice in D.C. while he's on the bench, which is not, I mean, that, that becomes like a little part of it. But the the real story is about yeah you know this woman Carol from from Birmingham and and her history with the judge and sort of how that kind of plays out and um, you know how she kind of deals with this suddenly this judge suddenly coming back into the news and bringing these things back up again I don't know exactly how you would characterize what she's seeking you know I guess in some ways it's justice. It's not really closure, I would guess, but uh, it's at least addressing something that at the time she didn't feel empowered to address and that her parents or her mom in particular kind of addressed in a way that that fell well short of like actually holding him to account. I know what she was seeking. Uh, She wanted the world to know what happened and for the truth to be out. Because she because she says in multiple times in the episode that she has reticence about ruining his legacy and his career. She has reticence about, um, you know, hurting him in some ways. And she also in the moments in the podcast where she believes he is given an admission and that he feels contrite, she feels relief. And then that relief is stripped away later when he issues a denial of her account of the story and the truth is no longer out. Like you, for me, what this whole thing is really about, this exploration of Carol's story, it's twofold. One is about the lingering trauma of childhood sexual abuse and all the things that it brings with it. A lot of it is about that thing, about the truth, about feeling like there's a thing out there, there's a person walking around who did something that no one can see. And the second part of it, which to me, this podcast is just a stellar example of, is the reporting process itself. And in this case, it's journalism that's used to demonstrate this. But how hard it is to irrefutably prove Mm -hmm. the veracity of a claim like this. She told me she hadn't told anyone until years later. That made it more difficult for me as a reporter to try to corroborate her account. But I wanted to try to get as close to the heart of the truth as I could. I can't go back to 1976. But I could try to find the people who were there. And Amy Britton takes us through the layers of how you have to report it, how you have to get the firsthand source, how you have to figure out she is who she says she is. Then you have to talk to people in her immediate circle. And then you have to widen the circle and go back in time. This is happening so frequently now. And the podcast does not do this ham-fisted thing where it's like, see, this is like just like every other accuser. But Kevin, I mean, that's really stunning, right? That we just sort of see and hear Amy taking us through that process using journalism to show us how it works. I found that really, really stunning. Yeah. And it, it is a good look at sort of those problems with investigating those kind of accusations from a long time ago. Like, I think a lot about, like, uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Yeah. About what the challenges were there. Uh, and it, in this case, it was not that... I don't think that the podcast listener ever doubts 
Carol. Like, I don't think that's the conflict. I think that the narrative conflict is, how do you prove that? Hmm. You know, because there isn't something concrete like a videotape, right? Or, a th- you know, like that, that would prove that. There rarely is in any crime, though. Exactly. Yeah. So you're like, okay, well, how do you pr- how do you prove that from 1970, whatever it was? And why is it so hard to believe and, the and, person who wants it proved, right? Right, right. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's hard to believe her. But I think we, for Carol and, and Amy, I think we're, we're thinking about, okay, how is Amy going to prove this? Right. Where, where are the clues? That's the real thing. It's not whether or not it actually happened. I think we all believe that it actually happened. It's always sort of the, oh, man, how do we make it stick? And she has a lot more evidence than a, you know, Christine Blasey Ford has, or in a lot of these cases, she's got a lot of people who she told to. Sorry, Christine Blasey Ford. Okay. <laughs> all, right, all right. Well, then maybe that's a bad example, but but she, she comes with a lot of receipts. She told Matthew Lane, her ex-husband. But it definitely came up over the course of, of our years. She told Felix Joffreon, her therapist. She talked about how horrible it was. She told Nell Ruby, her best friend from college. She told me that he had molested her. She told Isaac, her son. In general terms, that it had been something that had happened to her. And she gave details. So, Laura, what did you think of Carol as a character, as a person? You know, we sort of, she's like, what, Birmingham famous, they call her. She runs that huge bakery. Uh, it's like how you're Exeter famous. <laughs> exactly. She's the <laughs> Laura Bricker of Birmingham. She talks to everyone. Everyone knows her. Plus, she also has, a, like Kevin said, a lot of receipts. She kept her journals. She's got all this documentation. What did you think of her? Well, this is interesting because you have to think when you first hear her, why would she feel so compelled to come forward now? And, and you recognize as the story goes on, that this has been an ongoing situation in her life. She's been in therapy for years dealing with this. It's been something that's kind of dominated her adult life since this happened. But I thought it was it was just very brave that she was willing to show her just raw vulnerability as we got to know her more. And there were different things that happened as the story progresses and as Amy is reporting. And the fact that Carol was willing to be so honest about how this was affecting her was really unique as opposed to other podcasts we've listened to where we've had cases with victims and especially sexual assault victims to be this transparent. And and I feel, Laura, I don't know if you got this too, that when I'm listening, Carol could have been 25 or 30 years old, not 60. It was hard. Sometimes you kind of forget because it's ever present for her in the way she speaks about it. Mm. But just hearing her talk about it. She's also super well adjusted. I mean, she's not like, I mean, she has, she's carrying it with her. She's also very successful, Mm -hmm. interesting, fully developed, fleshed out person. Like every almost victim of molestation is walking around in the world, coping, but carrying this horrible burden. I mean, that is the story of the the victims of sexual. That is the story. So, Toby, uh, let's talk about Judge Morrison a little more, because on paper, like I said, he is a person that on this podcast and in other podcasts and in other reporting that has, in fact, been done about him, we root for. Right. Yeah, we'd say. Yeah. Toby. Yeah. How do we square that? How do we look at the body of this man's work, this legacy? Everybody says that he has done a tremendous amount of pro-criminal justice reform work, that without him, we wouldn't have all these measures in place. He's a renowned speaker on the topic. And he admits, as we hear in the podcast, that he did, in fact, have what he calls, quote, inappropriate sexual touching with a minor. How do we square that? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an answer to that. 
I, I think there's a lot of examples of, of similar situations where you have people who have done great social good while at the same time in their personal lives done done great harm. Mm. And I, you know, I, I think it's just, it's one of those things that it's hard to figure out how do you assess it. Uh, that's what Carol's mom, Janet, struggles with, mm. right? That's something she stumbles on. And when they actually talk to uh, Truman Morrison's friends, like right towards the end, I, I don't know if it's the last episode or the second to last episode, you know, they, maybe it's not stated outright, but it seems like the attitude is this is a great man. You know what's to be gained from from dragging him down with this? Like, why is this coming out now? Like, what what does this accomplish other than tarring these things that he's done? So, I think it's one a bunch of like super interesting things. I think are brought up in this podcast, and I, I think rightly she doesn't feel the need to spend much time trying to resolve them or investigate them because it's not the main thing about it. But I think one of the great things about this podcast is I could see like using this to have discussions about just that topic or about who's watching the judges. How do you keep the judges honest in what they're doing? And, they're, and they talk about that, but not at great length about there, there's really is no way of, you know, censuring Morrison for some of these senses that he's handing down. Laura, I have a question for you because I found myself wondering this. Um, you know, I suspected when we first heard the accusation at the end of episode one that they had something on him because otherwise they probably wouldn't have included his <laughs> yeah. name in the podcast. Accusing someone of being a child molester is not something you put out there if you're Washington Post journalist unless you're going to back it up. Um, we hear that he, as he knows that this reporting is happening, that nothing has been published, but he starts getting the inquiries about the reporting. It's the letter from Amy that she mails him. We hear that he kind of re abruptly retires. Uh, and so I guess he feels like he's going to have to reckon for this at some point. We hear that then he admits to inappropriate touching but then refutes the specifics of the account. Now, this is after we hear that it's not prosecutable what the specifics were. So we hear that, you know, she goes and talks to that expert who says, oh, this wouldn't have been prosecuted anyway. And then we hear the judge just won't admit to Carol's memory that she was sleeping when this thing happened, which doesn't really matter really in the aggregate. But I, I why, think it does, but I'll explain why. Later. But why do you think he like is willing to admit that he's child molester, but not willing to admit that he did it while she was sleeping? I, that just really like 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 made me wonder. Well, I think it's he's just trying to sort of in his own mind make it a little bit less heinous as to to like what happened. So, you know, if she was sleeping, that's really, he's like, wow, that's, you know, somebody doesn't even know this is happening to them. Think about what this means. Whereas if she was awake, I think in his mind, he's trying to rationalize it in a way like, well, she was sort of complicit in this because she was awake and it wasn't violent. I think it was just him sort of trying to bargain with himself mm. about the severity of what happened to sort of, in his own mind, come out feeling like, well, it was bad, but it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was like, I, I, I just think, but I was surprised that, you know, in the beginning, he wasn't going to respond. And then the next thing you know, he responds like, what, three times? Yeah. Um, and each time he responds a little bit more. And I thought it was really interesting when he retired, because, of course, that means he's not going to lose his retirement 
if anything ended up happening. Right. So I was like, well, that's sort of savvy. But I think it was it was interesting that you realize early on as I was listening to this, before we got to this particular section of the podcast, I was thinking, well, I know they have talked to him or they've communicated with him because for them to be mentioning his name from the beginning of episode two, and I think they hinted at it at the end of episode one, you can't do that if you haven't done your reporting. So I'm right. like, I know eventually we're going to hear from him. But I was I was surprised. Yeah. And, and, and Rebecca, when you talked about the way he said something and then walked it back, remember, that's actually two different communications, or at least that's right. the way it's presented. No, I know. The first one was a very cursory, sort of cursory yeah. but acknowledged it. And I think as a listener, you go, oh. I was expecting a, a lot of refusal, mm. right, or denial, because that's usually what happens. Um, but he remembered he'd sent the letters. You know he remembered well, he'd sent the letters but, to the but family. But I'm look, he says it, and it's never too late to do the right thing, and it was the right, not 100%. He didn't go all the way. It was the right thing to not deny it. But then there's another letter where he walks it back, and that was... I heard what you've been saying about me, and that's well, not was, true, yeah. Yeah, it, and I think the Harry's trying to split is to say, you know, what happened on that trip when she was 16? And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened when she's unwelcome touching, and she's like 21 and there, right? I think he is trying to say... In his mind, you think he she thought was, it was in consensual? For the age might have, yeah. Well, I don't know if he thinks it's consensual. But he's trying to make the I case. Think he's yeah. laying yeah. down the idea that it was consensual. Right. But he sent the family. And he's only letters. refuting the yeah. thing, right? And that's why the letters are so important. So damning. So yeah. fucking damning. Like he can deny it all he wants, but he admitted it earlier. I write not to explain or justify my past conduct. I write only to somehow express the deep, aching sadness and shame that I feel. The pain I have caused, Carol, you, and your family. I'm trying to find ways to face the realization that I am inescapably the kind of person who could have acted so thoughtlessly. And can I say it's real? I want to talk about the penultimate scene, which sure. is the, the which is Carol and Lauren who come together. But the idea that the letters have been out there lost for the whole podcast, and you kind of forget about them. You're like, oh yeah, that would have been the nail in the coffin, right? But you can't find them. And then that they find them and, and they read them at the end. Her mother finds them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that they had them, but, yeah. the, but they're able. Those are the receipts. Right. And so you can, you know, I want to say read between the lines. You can read the lines. Toby, all I could think of when they found the letters and when there was all of this, like, really irrefutable evidence in his own words that he had this, did this horrible thing to this young girl. All I could think about were these asshole friends of his. <laughs> And talked in the pockets, except for the one guy who had been his friend who was like, you know, I don't care. Like, if he did this, it's bad. Like, I can't stand, you can't stand with someone who does something like that. But that woman. But what perplexes me is why 40 years later, she's, you know, seeking publicity with the Washington Post and not therapy to resolve any things that are still Obviously, I guess, or not obviously, but maybe still troubling her. I would love to be a fly on the wall as she is forced to sit and listen to this whole fucking podcast and then hear how she sounds in it, questioning whether or not Carol is in it for the quote publicity. I would love to make her listen to this and watch her listen to it. Toby, what do you think of that? That whole receipts uh, thing at the end and then just thinking about 
all of these people who are just like so unwilling to believe that Truman could have done anything wrong. I thought you were going to ask me what I thought about your loving to watch her have to watch her. <laughs> Listen to that. Um, Would you love to watch Rebecca watching it? Oh my God, this show. Yes, that sounds Just awesome. an asshole. Such an asshole. That would have been a great thing for Facebook Watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, like one of the interesting things was how all this stuff kind of reflected on the psychology of Morrison and that, you know, he sent those letters and then there's like Kevin was talking about this weird sort of hair splitting thing that he does uh, with, well, this is true and that's not true. And I did something bad, but it wasn't that. And then even kind of flowing into where they start doing that, that little bit of data journalism and they're talking about, uh, the senses that he's giving to uh, people who commit, uh, you know, sex crimes. You know, it seems like a, uh, there's a lot of sort of, you know, a battle with inside himself about how bad what he did actually was, which I think probably his sentencing, his giving light sentences has something to do with trying to, in his own mind, like lessen the severity of the crime. I, you know, I know that, if my daughter had been listening to this and heard those letters, she would have been like, that's performative. That's totally performative. You know, I, I, I assume it's just arrogance and egotism, but I feel like this is all like part of what's going on is, is him trying to process what he's done in a way that he still feels good about himself. And again, it's, it's not really re-victimizing people, but it's, it's not acknowledging the reality of what he did beyond sort of saying the things he feels like he he needs to say to appear compassionate. But then when it comes right down to it, and it's like, you did this, this, and this, then you see him really react and be like, no, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. It was this way. And it's like, okay, well, th- you know, that's the bargain that you tried to make with yourself. Like you're willing to throw out the empty words, but when it comes down to really facing the reality of what happened, you're, you're unable to go to, to that extreme. Laura Bricker, what did you think of Carol and Lauren's meetup at the end? We hear that Carol finally gets to meet Lauren, uh, the subject of the article that led her to make this public accusation against Judge Morrison, and they have a scene together. Uh, let's just play a quick clip of that. But I know that I'm different right now. I'm a different person. <laughs> Sorry. Of course. <laughs> I'm a different person. <laughs> Laura, what'd you think of that scene? I think this this was just super powerful. And again, as I said earlier, this is really unique in terms of podcasts that we've listened to because I feel like we've listened to a lot of stories where we hear about the injustice of the criminal justice system. And here we actually have a really clear look at what it's like to be a victim of sexual assault in that criminal justice system and how it affects you. And and these two women are just so honest and they're, they're really showing us what it's like to go through this from their perspective. But when they meet, I mean, it's obviously... None of this would have happened if without either of them. Like Carol wouldn't have come forward if not for Lauren. 
And Lauren would not have perhaps felt this sense of, I don't want to say closure, because I don't think it's closure, but she would not have come to the place that she was at emotionally without Carol. So, you know, I think it was it was just amazing to hear the two of them meet. Very emotional. I think there was, you know, certainly people listening to this that got pretty emotional listening because it was it was intense. Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I thought the end was very powerful. I mean, they're crying, I'm crying, the listeners are crying. We've done going on 500 reviews, right? I can't remember anything that that was that powerful and that raw and that pure. It does, it's something that doesn't translate in print or on, a, on a, a web page. It only really translates in a recording. And I thought it was great. It, it was, you know, it was very, very moving and it was a, it was a triumph and it it was almost like, you know, I, I think that uh, Amy was transparent, like that was going to be the end because it would have been a perfect ending. Yeah. What could top that? Yeah. And then on a very different emotional note, they do top it. So it's like the last 15 minutes of this podcast series is just fantastic. It's just different from anything else that we've heard. Yep. If I have one disappointment. Data journalism. The data journalism project part of that. They tried. They tried. Yeah. It was pretty inconclusive. It was kind of blase. There was nothing really there from it. It was the process. Unfortunately, it was the process. They went for it. Good for them. Yes. And they they didn't come out. Yeah. They were trying trying to come out with a Doug Evans like data point. They they were never able to get it. But they showed us it was hard. And that was the point, I think, of including it. Oh, yeah. Anyway, well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know should they listen to Canary? I believe this is the first serialized investigation. Investigative podcast from the journalism at the Washington Post. You mean Post? Washington Post. <laughs> Are you making fun of Amy's accent, which I think might be from Pittsburgh or the greater Washington? I think it's like area. sounds like Minnesota. It's not. It's Canada-ish. not. That is definitely a mid-Atlantic kind of Pittsburghian. Have you guys ever listened to Almond Brothers at Fillmore East? No. Right before they play the we song like Whipping Uncle Post, <laughs> they say uh, they're like, "We're going to play something on our first album." This guy goes Whipping Post, and this other guy goes really loudly Whipping Post, and it sounds just like she says it. <laughs> so that was the only thing I could think of the entire time i was like wow she sounds like the almond brothers guy i, I work with a pittsburghian who says post the same exact way so. stay tuned for murder at white house farm <laughs> all right laura bricker should our listeners check out canary from the washington post thumbs up or thumbs down what do you think uh, yeah absolutely this is a big thumbs up um this is super unique as i've said before in terms of when we've listened to other podcasts about sexual assault or uh you know the criminal justice system perhaps failing victims of crimes. Here we have really a unique and very vulnerable and very honest window with two victims of sexual assault in a way that we've not heard before. And we also have tremendous reporting that is backing this all up. I mean, you know, like uh, Kevin said, I agree. I was like, okay, they had this big setup for the data-driven reporting and they're like, yeah, we couldn't produce it. And I'm like, Ah, so there was that part. But overall, this was just a really well done podcast. It's definitely rage inducing. If you are looking to keep your rage walking going this fall as the days are getting shorter and you're having a hard time, listen to this. Great. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Canary from the Washington Post? <laughs> uh, I, I give it a, a, a hearty thumbs up. I, you know, I think it succeeds in a lot of ways. Uh, there's just so much stuff to think about. The reporting is great. The only thing I can think of that kind of deals with trauma 
in a way that's comparable might be uh, Finding Cleo, hmm. which we, you know, that that was a number of years ago, but that uh, is the second season of Missing and Murdered. But I, I think those are the only two that I can think of that really were sort of at this sort of emotional pitch about trauma. Uh, and and that, that's not like a backhanded thing or anything. I mean, I, I think it's really, it's a tough thing to have trauma played in a way that is, is both sort of tangible and real. It doesn't feel as though you're exploiting uh, the people who you're telling the story about, but that clearly isn't the case. For me, it was is a lot of stuff to think about. It's also affecting on an emotional level. And, you know, the journalism is great. So I, I don't know what more you could ask for. Kevin Flint. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up. I think that this is, uh, you know, a really good look at, at, first of all, inside an investigation, which is always very interesting. The challenge that uh, our reporter has in verifying the claims that are that are made um, for many, many years ago, the way that those facts affect the people that were involved, Carol and her family. I think it's, you know, at the, the end is very, very powerful. The setup is, you know, a tough ask. If you get to ex- episode, start of episode two and you think, okay, this is where we're going. What do we have to do to sort of complete this story in a way that's at all satisfying to the listener or makes any kind of sense? seems like it'd be a really difficult needle to thread and they do it yep it's an excellent job i would just say as a writer the one thing i'm disappointed don't about, don't do it don't complain about it don't do it look they called it canary for a reason i love the name they never came back at the end though to explain their theory about why it's my review <laughs> <laughs> tell me why you thought how you think that the canary story fits in and connects with uh with carol and lawrence it's a very thoughtful podcast i thought it would have been a very thoughtful note to end on yeah i actually love the name canary because i think it opens up for other stories that are like this where one person tells a story that then unleashes a series of events for a lot of other things to happen which i believe is why this one is called canary um I think Canary is one of the most perfect podcasts that I have listened to in a very, very long time. These stories are difficult to tell well in a way that makes you crave listening to the next episode. Uh, What it comes down to when you listen to a project like this is you have to want to turn the page. You have to want to hit play on episode two and episode three and episode four and episode five. And with a story like this, that is a tremendously difficult hurdle to cross, like making a listener fascinated by and and intrigued by and dare I say entertained by at moments a story that is this painful it is fantastic and it lands the plane in a way that I didn't expect it's beautiful the parent and kid stuff we didn't even talk about that there's a whole aspect of that in there that's just like so new and fresh and as part of this kind of story you don't hear about I absolutely loved every minute of this podcast and i cannot wait to see what this audio team and this journalism team does next at the washington post i promise i will listen to it no matter what you make please make more huge thumbs up for me for canary disney plus and hulu are better together in the disney bundle with new movies and series on disney plus experience the full taylor swift the eras tour taylor's version with new main show performances and acoustic collection On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details.
Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. All right, Kevin, we're moving on to the business portion of the podcast. Oh, I'm going to sing it. <laughs> you sound just like the song. I always have perfect pitch, you know that. All right, Kevin, what do we got going on our Patreon right now for our listeners who want to join us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media? Available right now is the Crime Writers on After Show, where we are talking about... The end of The Vow, season one. Are we? And what's going to happen? <laughs> Are we looking forward to The Vow, season two? No, no, that's not what we're talking about. We might mention that, but we're really talking about the final episode of the greatest podcast ever made in the dark season two. Rebecca, you were there for the meeting. We're talking about both of those okay, things. Great. Wait, I just watched the end of The Vow so I could talk about it. Perfect. Are you saying that that's not yes. happen? Yes. Of course we're going to talk about it. He that. just watched it and he wants to know if something happened. Excellent question, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> we also got a really great episode of uh, Married with Podcasts. It's extra long and packed. It's got questions about uh, politics and sex and smoking and, well, a whole bunch of other great it's stuff. It's a really good sex question. It's a, yes. <laughs> is it a question or is it a brag? That's a really good sex question. I'm just going to say it. Listen to Married with Podcasts this week. You're going to love it, Patreon people. All right, so you can check those out, plus Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, plus Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker investigative podcast when you join us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? This week's Patreon patron saints are Jeff Brumley and Patrice Delahunty. Jeff Brumley is Bless one of our you. Patreon patron saints. He actually made an appearance in that uh, Married with Podcast. He was in our live Married with Podcast event, and he is goddamn Benjamin Button, Jeff Brumley. Because he's a grandfather who looks like he... Uh, he looks like he's 28 years old. He looks like he's 28 years old. Yes. What? You know who Jeff Brumley is? He started yes. when he was yes. 13. Come no, on. Not Jeff Lasseter. Jeff Brumley, different Jeff. He is, swear to God, swear to God, has grandkids. And he looks like he's 28 years old. I'm so jealous of Jeff Brumley. Well, congratulations, Jeff and Patrice, on being our Patreon patron saints of this week. And if you want a chance to listen to all that extra content, maybe be picked as a saint and be blessed by Kevin Flynn. Kevin, how do you say that? Bless you. <laughs> Join we us. We have at- two listeners named Jeff. We do. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) At patreon.com slash partners in crime media. We have so many Jennifers. Yes, 27. At least. And thus... 16 tens, 16 Jennies, 10 Jens, and then there was her. Yes, and that's ends. That's ends. Our the business, business All right, let's move on to a review, shall we? What seems to be the problem? Look, my father's just rung and told me to come over. Um, 
he sounded terrified. He, and did your father say what happened? Yes, he said my, it was my sister that she'd gone crazy with a gun. A village in Essex, England was rocked in 1985 when Sheila Caffell murdered her parents and twin sons before turning the gun on herself. Authorities are eager to close the case as a murder-suicide, but something about the findings inside the isolated farmhouse just don't sit right. What's this then? Looks to me like a second bullet wound. So she's been shot twice? Apparently so. And we're saying she did this to herself? Gun might have gone off itself a second time. Or if she squeezed the trigger again as she was dying. You ever seen that happen? Not that I can recall. Sheila's adopted brother, Jeremy, mourns in public. But behind closed doors, he's enjoying his newfound wealth and freedom as his parents' only heir. You've only ever cared about their money. It's few any different. You can't wait to move yourself in here, can you? You're glad they've gone. You dare say that to me! I know what you did! What? I know! What? What? You killed them! HBO Max has re-released the ITV miniseries The Murders at White House Farm. This retelling of one of Britain's most notorious crimes follows a marginalized detective and the victim's relatives as they pursue their doubts about a case investigators are quick to consider done and dusted. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for The Murders at White House Farm, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Now, Toby Ball, your first note for the murders of White House Farm. This checked all the boxes for me, says Toby Ball, and I am so happy to hear that. What boxes are you talking about, Toby? Uh, you know, I'm just the look of it, uh, you know, the way it was directed, the cinematography, the sort of British kind of dark crime series. It reminded me a little bit of like the early books of Minette Walters. I don't know if anybody else has read her, but um, I don't know. It's it's like the kind of series that I I get so psyched to watch. Like I thought it I, it was really like perfect. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Laura, what do you think of the casting of the series, which to me was a real high point of the murders at White House Farm? Oh, the casting of this was awesome. And there's so many things to talk about on that. But like right off the bat, I'm going to say the casting of Jeremy. Freddie Fox. I I mean, you feed all these starving people in Africa. And then next year, they're all going to be starving again. So what then? Another concert? So what should we do, let them die? I think we should make them all self-sufficient. I think we should teach them to put on their own concerts. Jeremy. Oh, my God. I was, like, yelling at this when I was watching it. I was so enraged. I was like, I hate him. I hate him. But that was, like, a sign of, like, the casting was so good. And I couldn't stop watching because I was like, oh, I want him to go down. Um, So I thought that was great. And also his girlfriend, Julie, was, I thought, just played her role spectacularly. She's um, incredible. Yeah, she just had such great nuance in her expressions and her character. So I thought it was awesome. Can I just get this out of the way now? Sure. Which is how many of these people were in Game of Thrones? Just so we don't have to bring this <laughs> oh, up again. Oh, there's a few. Okay. <laughs> well, that's right, right because you never watched Game of Thrones, right? I but just yes. assumed that about half of them probably were. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Colin Caffell, the father. Actually, yeah, the father. Yep. Um, uh, Stanley, Mark Stanley had a small role. Uh, let's see, Brett Collins, uh, who was the, uh, the gay friend from New Zealand who came in. Yes. Alfie Allen. Yes, Lily Allen's brother. Lily Allen's brother. The song Alfie is about him. That was Theon Greyjoy. That's right. And his sister, Yorick Greyjoy, was cousin Anne, played by Gemma, Gemma Whelan. So it's like when they shake hands each other, it's like, nice to meet you. And it's like, oh, don't you remember in Game of Thrones where you met her and started fingering her, (laughs) but you didn't know she was your sister? Because that's just how everything happened happens in Game of Thrones. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So there were a lot of big Game 
of Thrones. Okay, you're right. We got it out of the way, Toby. Thanks. We got it. Totally got it out of the way. Very important. I was actually going to let it roll, but okay. Plus, the guy from uh, The Full Monty was in it as well. Oh, yeah. Mark Caddy. Yes. Yes. Who I haven't really seen him in anything since. I'm sure he's been in tons of things, but I mostly came on the screen and I was like, it's Full Monty guy. Yeah. Is he going to take off his pants? <laughs> no. But he is going to solve the crime. Now, Kevin, it's a, this is a little bit of an open mystery, at least from the first, like, maybe halfway through and on. I mean, certainly it is not lost to the viewer that Jeremy very likely could have done it. Everybody starts to suspect him about halfway through the series. I think that becomes cemented. Then he becomes a suspect, yeah. Yeah. In the end. But there's a lot yeah. of telegraphing that he, in fact, is the person. It was just a question of how and how he did. You know what I mean? But how is it that it is suspenseful and good to when you have a story like that when the viewer kind of knows what the outcome is going to be right. especially if she read Wikipedia well, about the case in advance <laughs> well I think for a lot of the American audience <laughs> yeah. they don't, they're don't they not familiar with this case the, the UK audience is because it's a big uh, historical case so for me, you know, the suspense was already built in. I didn't know anything about it more than sort of what I saw in the previews that had, I think it was the sister did it. Oh, okay, the sister did it. Uh, but I, I, I think that they did a good job of reintroducing suspense by the way they were telling the story. Mm. Now, in the end, it actually doesn't come down on a side about whether or not he did it or not, because there is a movement in Britain that says he's innocent and he was framed. He did it. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm just I'm just <laughs> reporting. I'm just saying if you remember what Twitter was like after Amanda Knox, yeah. it's not it, I would not be surprised if a bunch of bots come after us for saying anything about uh Jeremy Bamber. But it 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 basically just lays out what happened. Is you know, we don't really know, you know, they don't stage a shooting scene because that will never be known. Yeah. But it's much more powerful, I think, to lay out the little bits and reveal each little thing as, you know, the silencer and the length of the rifle and the, okay, he used the telephone, but he got shot in the mouth. And, you know, all these little things just coming out, not all in like one big five minute scene, but spread out over, a, a, you know, a series of episodes. So many great scenes. The scene with the shotgun in the police room was one of the best scenes in the whole series. The, you know, I, what I love. The loved, window latch. Yeah, what I love. Loved Laura was how they they didn't. This is a gruesome, horrible, horrible crime, and they didn't do an easy thing to do that a lot of Mar- American shows like this would have done, which is sort of like the fantasy recreation of the crime where we watch it in That's all what of I was its glory. About, yeah. Like we don't, they don't do that. They, they they don't show the kids' bodies. They don't exploit like the many many gruesome details of the crime for our titillation. They show enough. To show the horror of it without slamming it with us. But what do you think about about that, about the style of it, and how they're able to keep up the suspense when it's pretty clear from early on that Jeremy is a pretty freaking awful person? Yeah, I mean, that's like Kevin, I was not familiar with this case. And I know like all of our UK listeners are going to be like, what? I mean, it's, it's like everybody over there knows this case. So even though, you know, from the first episode, it's, it's pretty clear. We know that Jeremy is the evil villain. Like I want to punch him through the screen. But the way that the story was told, it was, it was pretty straightforward, true crime style, but they kept the suspense up in such a way that, 
I mean, I sat down and just like watched this in one afternoon because I, I needed to know what happened next. You know, in addition to that, I mean, there was enough that was hinted at and enough that was shown that you got the sense of how horrible this was. And quite honestly, I think it was actually more effective knowing about these little boys that were killed and seeing pictures of them and seeing flashbacks of them was actually, to me, more effective in sort of conveying the horror of this crime than seeing their dead bodies. Because the suggestion of something sometimes is actually more, to me, it sometimes is worse than seeing it because your mind can do so much worse. But also just thinking and seeing these boys in life and seeing how vibrant they were and how innocent they were. And then seeing their little beds in that room with their little bedspreads. I mean, it was horrible. Now, Toby, one very, like, tropey thing that we get a lot in this kind of media and these kinds of stories is the supervisory chief cop who wants to just close the book on the case. And, you know, you have, like, the scrappy cop who's not willing to let it go. And there's, like, a lot of loggerheads there. That did strike me as a little bit tropey. The performances, I think, were great, especially of DCI. Is it Taff, Kevin, the evil Taft cop? Taff Jones, and, yeah, Thomas and that, Jones. Of course, that scene around the conference room where it's like, who thinks Jeremy did it? And everyone is like, me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Toby, did you find the cop stuff to be like a little bit overdone, tropey, like I did? Yeah, I mean, I think that was... There are a couple sort of disappointing things, uh, and that was one of them. I thought the portrayal of Taff was so great that that part of the relationship didn't really bother me. I mean, he's like, he's feral. Yeah. You know, he's just... He, well, he's Scottish, Toby. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. No, Welsh. Um, oh, Welsh. Yeah, sorry. Welsh. Sorry. Oh, sorry. well, that's sorry, a completely different thing <laughs> altogether. Um, but what the fuck with that accent? Listen to me, Sergeant. That house was locked up from the inside. Doors latched, windows locked. Back door even had a bloody key in it. So if she hasn't shot herself, who do you think's done it? Hey, one of the children. It's fantastic. Even even people in the UK, even Welsh people are like, what the fuck with that accent? <laughs> Why do you sound like you're from Scotland? <laughs> it's it's perfect. Yeah. I don't know what, what the hell's going on, but I he was great. But the the whole Stan uh and and his like young protege Mick you know, I think the, the acting was was certainly good, but what they were what they were given, particularly Stan. It's just sort of by the numbers stuff. The guy who's quiet and kind of beaten down, but like is the one person who kind of sees through everything and and understands and kind of stays with it despite, you know, he's bucking, you know, the the guys above him and stuff. So that was, you know, that was disappointing. I mean, it just seemed like it wouldn't have taken a whole lot of work to make them stand out a little bit more or or have personalities beyond exactly what you'd be expecting from the way they were described. But, and I don't know how much of it is. I mean, I think they kind of ran into, you guys were just talking about Jeremy and, and how you kind of get a sense of who he is pretty early on. And when I was watching it, just from sort of a plotting standpoint, I was like, why don't they, you know, cause you've got, you've got Colin who thinks he's this great guy. And then you've got, Anne. I think, I think that's a cousin's name who, you know, is super suspicious of him and thinks he's evil. And and you're pretty quickly shown which one of them is right. It, it would have made for a more interesting show is if the audience wasn't quite sure what to make of it. 
And, and so there was some ambiguity. But I think part of it is that, you know, I, I assume in the UK, people kind of know who he is and know what the deal is. So that would ring kind of false uh, to them. So I think that that just kind of comes down to one of the problems of basing it on, a, you know, a docudrama. Those are two things that I found like a little bit frustrating in what was otherwise, you know, I thought like a high quality uh, show. The thing about uh, Taft Jones, the detective chief inspector, yep. DCI, the, the boss, a real, real person, yep. wasn't made up a uh, whole cloth like I thought. And he really did, you know, a, was stuck to the idea that it was uh, murder, suicide uh, for a, a long time. They say in real life, though, he did come around. Mm. Uh, whether or not he was as a hard ass as he was portrayed, that's one thing. But you know why he wasn't? They didn't see him in the courtroom? Why? Because he died. Really? He fell off a ladder before the trial. Oh, tough. So, now I feel bad. Yeah, I mean, that's a, kind of a weird I feel bad thing. for thinking he was a dick now. Well, you don't think he's a dick. You could say that Stephen Graham maybe, you know, chewed a little of the furniture in that <laughs> farmhouse. <laughs> Jeremy, however, was a dick. Laura Bricker, what'd you think when he put his mother's poor dog to sleep for no reason? Oh, I forgot about oh, that! Oh, God. Oh, my no God. No reason. I can't see him getting along without my mum. This is kind of... It's your call. Just seems a shame. Oh, my God. That was the worst scene of this whole show. Honestly, because you really see the worst? That, well... The worst? <laughs> I, 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 I don't mean, disagree. The six people murdered. I'm be honest. We didn't five, see the six people okay, murdered. Five people we did murdered. see the dog murdered. Right. Where we see the poor vet. I mean, it's like that whole like James Harriet, uh, like the country vet, and he's out in the shed with this dog, and I'm like, and then the guy just like he starts like smoking a cigarette afterwards, like he's like had sex or something. Like what the fuck? I'm so glad Wayne's not here anymore, so I can express my true feelings. Because Rebecca, did you not feel that way? Oh yeah. But also, it, it happened. I mean, I had to, I looked it up. It happened. So, like, that did include it. But, I mean, again, it wasn't graphic. Anybody who hasn't seen this yet and is afraid that it's not graphic. It's not, it's don't fuck sad. with cats. It's sad. Yeah. It's just sad because, you know, I mean, and by the way, it's not, it's not a real dog. I mean, the dog didn't really die. That's right. It's an the dog, dog was taken away afterwards. It's, it's, it's a, a stunt dog. <laughs> stunt dog. He's used to this. Yeah, it's a little something from craft services. Uh, b- before we give our review, I want to ask Toby about one other performance that I just loved, which was the Alfie Allen performance as Brett, Jeremy's uh, friend. Who from Australia, right? That's where he's from? New Zealand. New Zealand, right, right, right. That's sorry. racist, Rebecca. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be racist. Um, who kind of comes in and is like this uh, Lothario, along with Jeremy character. They travel together to Saint Tropez, where they seduce the old wrinkled ladies. But clearly they have potentially some kind of sexual relationship that his girlfriend, Julia, can like see, like just unfolding in front of her. But I just thought that performance in that character was just so great. What did you think, Toby? Yeah, it was awesome. I think I wrote in the note, it's, it felt like he dropped out of a Patricia Highsmith novel. Yeah. Everything about that character was great. And what's and that was the one thing, like I don't normally look things up on these for like what's real and what's not. But I was like, is that dude real? And uh, yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's really that guy. I don't know if he's like that, but if... <laughs> If, if somebody portrayed me like that, I think I'd be kind of bummed. But uh, it's you mean it's in members in, only jackets? Yeah, I, the, it's his his performance, the way the character was written, the whole thing. It, that was just great. And then he just leaves. He's like, oh, yeah. I guess and he's I'm like, just- oh. 
<laughs> Shit's not looking so good for you, pal. I'm I helped you sell all of your parents' antiques. It isn't to take off now. <laughs> I have to say, if you do look up, I mean, the photos at the end of the series showed some of this. But if you do look up just like the people and the settings, they recreated everything like really the detail here was incredible there's like this temptation sometimes to sort of make things grander than they were to make the house more of a mansion to make things less 70s or whatever no everything like looked and felt exactly like they made it in the show and i really commend the art direction and everything in this series so anyway i think we should do what we do let's let our listeners know should they check out the murders at white house farm on hbo max which is a little bit confusing to try to watch if you're a Comcast user like we are. You actually have to get the HBO Max app separately. It's a whole thing. But should they check it out if they can, in fact, find it? Lara Bricker, thumbs up or thumbs down? What do you think? Yeah, I would say definitely check this out. I mean, it was it was sort of that type of crime show that, you know, you can sit down and you just want to watch the whole thing all at once. It's got really interesting you know, setting, cinematography, characters. It's true. I would say um, to piggyback on what you said, HBO Max sort of drives me nuts a little bit because like I have HBO through an add-on through my Amazon, but you can't get HBO Max except on your phone or your computer, which is kind of a pain. Hopefully they figure it all out. If you can figure that out, I would say- You got it on watch- Apple TV. I don't have Apple yes. There's TV. so many devices. Yeah. Yes, and it's coming to Comcast. It's coming to the cable it's, services. Yeah. It's just not there yet. Anyway, so that's that. So I don't know what the difference is between HBO Max and HBO, but I would say I did really enjoy uh, the murders at White House Farm. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the murders at White House Farm? It was so close to being great, in my opinion. There, uh, It's really good. I, I give it a thumbs up. There's just a few things, and we've talked about some of them. I also... Not not the very ending, but like a large part of the end is a sort of extended courtroom thing, which I know is kind of the way those things go. But, uh, you know, something a little less ordinary, I guess. Although the, the, the court scene was written really well and, and had me wondering, like, did those people really say that stuff? Because it's pretty remarkable if they did. Like, I'd be interested in seeing the court transcripts because I thought it was really well written. So anyway, yeah, I, I, I really liked it a lot. And uh, thumbs up. Kevin Flint. Yeah, I liked the thumbs up. Um, I, I don't know if uh, HBO Max had always intended on getting this uh, property from ITV. I sometimes wonder, oh, you know, with all this COVID-19 production shutdowns, like when are we going to, when is all this stuff going to dry up? But they've done a good job of, you know, finding stuff and sourcing stuff so that there's always something in the pipeline. If all the stuff that gets recycled is stuff of this quality, if you're able to go out and hunt down the best of British television and the best of Scandi Noir and Scandi politics and, you know, maybe some some like great Canadian crime eh, or whatever, you know, introduce it to uh, an American audience. So racist. What? what was that accent? I apologize for my microaggression to my Canadian friends. If they're all like this, then I think we're going to be in uh, in good shape. So, yeah, thumbs up. Good job. Yeah. Murders at White House Farm. Exactly in my wheelhouse. I love a British mystery. I love a procedural. I love everything. English, as you know, last trip I'll probably ever take in my lifetime. Now, thanks to COVID, it was to England. 
I love people tromping around fields in wellies talking about whether or not someone's a killer. It's my favorite sweet spot of crime. And this one happened to be extremely well done. And the fact that Anyone it's about- Anyone we have to call somebody gov. <laughs> the, the fact that it's about a real case that's incredibly disturbing and also really important in the history of English uh, crime is, is makes it even better. I mean, if you look up the details of this real story, it's horrific, but also very, very intriguing and interesting. And, and there's no- there's a reason why this story continues to fascinate people. And I think that this show did it a lot of justice. So big thumbs up for me for the murders at White House Farm. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. A dairy farmer in Victoria, Australia, was trying to round up about 40 cows that wandered away when he found one in his neighbor's yard. The big girl had gotten stuck on the family's trampoline and couldn't get up. The neighbors had installed one of those ground level trampolines. The bovine just walked right over it. Folks said the cow couldn't get back up on her feet on the bouncy surface, so they used a tractor to lift her up. The farmer retrieved the bovine and got her home safely. That's how they have to get me up off one of those trampolines. (laughs) No kidding. So panel, it was quite a night for this cow, but what was this cow actually attempting to do on that trampoline. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, I'm going with the obvious here that um, it was making a latte. Nice. Uh, (laughs) Damn it, Bricker. (laughs) What about you, Toby Ball? What do you think? I don't know. You you know, milkshake, (laughs) cottage cheese, (laughs) you know, whatever. What do you think, Kevin? It's waiting for the cat and the fiddle. Because you can't jump over the moon by yourself, bitches. That's right. You cannot. Well, that was quite the dad joke, Kevin, and I really appreciated it. Thank you. We should probably you say she's training for an Olympic event. <laughs> we should probably get on on that note. But before we do, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. And this is a surprise one. This was not um, actually submitted to me, but this is one of our regular listeners and Twitter friends, Amy Schmelzer. 
Um, yes. Hello, Amy. Amy is also a fan of the orange male cats. I believe she has three orange cats. But Pudge, who is always up to trouble, I think Pudge has been picked up by her neighbors because he roams the neighborhood. Pudge brought a full-grown rabbit into her house this week. That was Amy's cat. I saw that on social media. The rabbit was almost as big as the cat. And it was just dead. And it says, actual quote, holy fucking shitballs, Pudge. <laughs> so, Kevin, I, you have to look this up. You have to. Have to look I mean, what up? You this have picture. to look up the rabbit. So I have to say, earlier this summer, I was feeling bad for the rabbits, but I realize now that I am a wildlife expert, that uh, aspiring wildlife expert, the rabbits, unfortunately, are here to feed the foxes and other animals. So they're going to die anyway, but holy crap, the thing's as big as the cat. So good job, Pudge. All right, Lara Bricker. <laughs> if folks want to reach out to you to uh, nominate their killer animals to be cat or dog <laughs> or llama of the week, how can they find you on Twitter? At Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to reach out to you and just say hi, let you know that you are correct, that that guy was feral in that role in the murders at White House Farm, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and gently encourage you to take your wife up on scheduling you that appointment at the barbershop, how can they reach you on Twitter? <laughs> it's at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you'll get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, oh, Toby Jesus Ball's Deep Rocky. Dive Book Club podcast and Lauren Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Just let's keep going. Let's ignore it. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the handsome Henry Lavoie, assisted by Olivia Burdett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we yell at each other in as thick a Welsh accent as we can muster. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. Later. Oh my God! Look, it happened. It didn't start at the. Oh, I, well, I think I accidentally dropped that uh, pin someplace. I shouldn't have to expose myself to a bunch of dewy-faced salamander people. I should do the whole podcast in Moira's voice. Kevin. Bebe. <laughs> Why do you have to bring your bebes to this podcast? I'll make the enchiladas. <laughs> enchiladas. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes.